You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. We're celebrating a birthday this month. Now, a lot of people will have been celebrating lockdown birthdays over the last uh, month or so, myself included, in fact. But spare a thought for the subject of this month's episode. Spending nearly every waking moment more than 600 kilometres away from the nearest person, zooming all around the world and sending pictures to anyone who'll receive them. No, we're not talking about a lonely astronomer. Uh, we're talking, of course, about the Hubble Space Telescope, which in April this year celebrated its 30th birthday. Launched in 1990, there are very few people can fail to have heard of the Hubble Space Telescope. A revolutionary mission when it launched. Uh, I was in primary school, in fact, and I remember reading uh, about it. And in fact, I found in my parents' attic when we were all going through it a few uh, a few months ago, a project that I uh, I wrote uh, in primary school all about the, the Space Telescope, which was uh, wonderful to, to go back and reminisce about. But over the last 30 years, Hubble's been through uh, good times and bad. And I want to go through its mission, its science achievements, its discoveries and so on over the last three decades. Let's start off with the start of the mission. And to find out more, let's hear from Professor Anu Oja, who's director of the National Space Centre up in Leicester and uh, Leicester University. Anu can tell us a little bit about the start of the mission and the early phases. Hi, Chris. Great to join you. Um, I've got to say, you're making me feel a bit old already because I, I was actually an undergrad when, when Hubble was launched in 1990. Um, but, but like you, I was just absolutely glued to the coverage because you know of course the concept of a large space telescope which was the initial name you know it goes it predates the space age even but then when the plans were being really formulated in the 1970s and then the agreements with ESA you know to finally see it launched on on STS 31 you know it was absolutely amazing and then of course we had all of the challenges that, that, that probably we're going to talk about a little bit later <laughs> Not everything went to plan with the start of the Hubble Space Telescope. Not long after it launched, uh, the team running the mission realised that the images it was collecting weren't quite as sharp as they should have been. And this revolutionary telescope was not giving the results it was hoped it would. The reason was discovered to be the optics itself, the main mirror of this telescope. The main mirror, 2.4 metres across, so a half or a quarter the size of some of the largest telescopes on the ground, uh, had the advantage that it didn't have the Earth's atmosphere to contend with and should have produced much, much sharper images than anything possible uh, down here on Earth. The reason that it wasn't doing those images was that it was slightly the wrong shape. And when we say slightly, we mean really slightly. Yeah, it was it was two thousandths of a millimetre. But of course, when we look at the wavelength range and the, the visible and the near infrared, you know, that's going to cause big issues. And, and, and of course, the challenge, as well as the reputational risk to, to NASA and ESA, was that uh, Hubble had always been designed to be reserviceable by, uh, by, by shuttle missions. Um, but they were envisaging that it would be reservicing, for example, replacing the photovoltaic arrays as, as greater efficiencies came along. And that was done several times. You know, nobody had really planned that you are going to literally open up the, the, the assembly and install new optics right into the optical path, um, replace, you know, the stuff that had to be installed to correct for, 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 the, for the deficient mirror curve. Um, that had never been planned for. And so, you know, having reached the sort of nadir of, uh, of, 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 of their sort of 
collective mood and spirit. The challenge was then on not only to design an instrument suite that could correct for the optics, that's fine, uh, but then also to, to, to develop the EVA, the spacewalk experience, to be able to install these optics within the Hubble Space Telescope assembly. And, and we've got to remember, Chris, that, you know, 1993 rescue mission was STS-61. That was before we, we, we had so much of the spacewalk experience that we've developed during the construction phase of the International Space Station. You know, first components of ISS were launched in late 1998. So one of the biggest challenges for that resurfacing mission was rehearsing what turned out to be the five EVAs, the five spacewalks involving four astronauts. How were they going to work uh, on an assembly like Hubble to install this? Because, of course, you know, you could install your equipment, your corrective optics, but if you're, if you're at all distorting um, the structural integrity of, of the material surrounding the optical path, then you might install the corrective optics, but then your telescope's just gonna be redundant. And so a lot of time was spent on, on trying to rehearse those procedures. And, um, and NASA pulled together, you know, it's, 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 it's some of its most experienced at the time within the shuttle program, spacewalkers to do it. Um, but it's still fair to say, you know, I, I heard it in, in a program, and I thought, is this a cliche? But it was true, you know, NASA and ESA's reputations were on the line during the launch of STS-61, and then crucially, once the repairs were done on the five spacewalks, um, depending on the calibration images, they knew whether or not they would have been successful. So, you know, you get some wonderful images from, from that particular mission. I think everyone's got their favorites. My, my one is this sort of dreamlike image with, with the Earth at the top of the image and Story Musgrave on the end of the robotic arm and Jeff Hoffman working around the bottom. I think that was on EVA-3. Um, but again, it was... Uh, all bets were off until we got the calibration images in. Uh, and then, of course, you know, when the collective spirit soared, then we started to get that train of revolutionary observations at all scales, you know, solar system to interstellar within our galaxy, all the way up to cosmological scales. Um, absolutely amazing mission, STS-61. That STS-61 mission in 1993 by the Space Shuttle Endeavour was the first of five visits to the Hubble Space Telescope. As well as installing a package to correct the optics, astronauts replaced its wide-field camera, upgraded its solar arrays, and installed or replaced a whole host of smaller parts. In 1997, the Space Shuttle Discovery returned to Hubble, having launched it seven years previously. Astronauts on that mission replaced two of its spectrographs, extending its reach into the infrared. They also replaced one of the data recorders, which were originally based on 1970s technology and magnetic tapes. Space telescopes use instruments called gyroscopes to change and stabilise their orientation, crucial for making such precise observations. Requiring three to stabilise all axes, Hubble was launched with six, as they were expected to eventually fail. In November 1999, a fourth one failed, leaving Hubble unable to make observations. And just one month later, all six gyroscopes were replaced along with computers, batteries and electronics and data recorders on a rescue mission from the Space Shuttle Discovery again. 2002 saw a more routine mission, if any mission to Hubble could be described as such. The Space Shuttle Columbia, on its penultimate mission before its tragic loss a year later, carried astronauts to add a new improved camera, which could image larger areas of the sky, and replace the coolant on one of its spectrometers, bringing it back to life. The final mission to Hubble came in 2009, after a long battle over the risks involved after the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster in 2003. The most challenging of all the missions, it was also known to be the last, with the Space Shuttle program due to come to an end a couple of years later. 
The crew on board the space shuttle Atlantis installed Hubble's two most sophisticated instruments, Widefield Camera 3 and the Cosmic Origins Spectrograph. Amazingly, they also delved into the interior of two other instruments and repaired the electronics. Crucially, they replaced one of the computer systems which had recently failed, and they gave it a new lease of life with new batteries and thermal blankets, and left it for the final time. But what about the discoveries that astronomers have made with Hubble over the decades? Let's have a look at a few of them, starting with one related to the telescope's namesake. The Hubble Space Telescope was named after Edwin Hubble, an astronomer from the early part of the 20th century who is famous for discovering a couple of things. One, that there are galaxies beyond our own, although he wasn't the only person to find that, but in 1925 he proved that the Andromeda Galaxy was beyond our own galaxy. And then later on, again along with others, showing that the universe was indeed expanding and that galaxies uh, seemed to be moving away from us on the largest scales, a result that went on to lead to the idea of the Big Bang and the expanding universe uh, in later decades. Those discoveries from almost 100 years ago meant that when NASA and ESA, the European Space Agency, were thinking up a name for their telescope, then Hubble was the obvious choice. And so let's begin with the observations from uh, the Hubble Space Telescope of distant galaxies. Let's hear from Professor Steve Eels, who's uh, an astronomer here at Cardiff University, and he works on galaxies near and far. I mean, the thing that Hubble um, kind of gave us immediately is it allowed us to look at galaxies with in much more detail. So um, if you observe it, it, galaxies, even with a big telescope from the surface of the Earth, you're fundamentally limited by the atmosphere that blurs your vision. Um, but Hubble, of course, was above the atmosphere and so gave us a much more detailed um, picture of, of galaxies. Um, and then I guess the other big thing was something that we kind of take for granted now, and it was really a clever idea by Bob Williams, who was director of the Space Telescope Science Institute at the time, and he, he, he sort of thought to himself, well, um, Hubble is, takes quite a lot of time to take pictures of the universe, but why not actually just stare at a single tiny part of the sky and spend an awful lot of time looking at it? And now this, this is something that's done fairly routinely with observatories nowadays, but I think at the time it was quite unusual. So, um, Bob, I think, I can't remember precisely how much integration time he used, but essentially he pointed Hubble um, continuously for many, many hours, I think it might even have been days, at this very tiny pinpoint part of the sky. And by building up the exposure time, um, they got a very, very sensitive deep image. Now, that first Hubble Deep Field has been succeeded over the years by the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, the Hubble Extreme Deep Field, and lots of other telescopes around the world and in space, also using the same kind of method uh, to stare at one area of the sky in huge detail, to be able to look at much, much greater distances and therefore further back in time through the universe's history. So where does that Hubble Deep Field really sit in that story? It was a stimulating thing. It was kind of a pathfinder. It was definitely a pathfinder for the method. It was a pathfinder, pathfinder for the idea of dumping data sets onto the, into the community and then getting people to play with them. The detail it showed in the galaxies uh, was kind of interesting because it showed that galaxies were smaller, distant high redshifts. A lot of ambiguity about what that means, all kinds of weird selection effects and things, but, but, it, but it is with Hubble that we've been able to measure sizes for the first time. It raised loads of questions. It didn't really answer questions but it raised loads of questions it produced lots of new data in all kinds of interesting different ways um, 
So it, it was amazing. I mean, considering it hadn't even, the mill wasn't even the right shape when it was launched. It's been amazingly powerful. Observations by the Hubble Space Telescope have revolutionised astronomers' understanding of galaxies beyond our own. Both nearby, such as the Andromeda Galaxy that Edwin Hubble first measured the distance to in the 1920s, to some of the most distant ones we know of. But what of Edwin Hubble's second big discovery, the expansion of the universe? In the mid-1990s, teams of astronomers were using Hubble and other large telescopes around the world to measure how far away distant galaxies were. The aim was to measure the rate of expansion of the universe and ultimately its eventual fate. They thought that by kind of sort of measuring the geometry of the universe, by measuring how the brightnesses change in distance, they would be able to tell um, whether the universe essentially had um, a lot of matter in it or rather less than that. So at the time, people thought the universe, the, the sort of fate of the universe was governed by how much matter there, there is in it. So if there's a lot of matter, eventually, eventually gravity will make the universe collapse. If there's not much matter, the universe will expand forever. And the idea that these various teams had was that they'd be able to figure out, they'd be able to use supernova data and actually figure out which of these two options was correct. Um, but as is sometimes happens in science, and when it does, it's really, really good, they found something unexpected. They found that when they looked at the supernovae, they were actually, um, I can't actually remember, it's much fainter or much brighter than expected. But anyway, they found they were very, very different from all the standard models. And what that made them realize is that it's not just gravity that's important in determining whether the universe expands forever or contracts. There's also a mysterious, weird force that appears to be making the universe accelerate which we now call dark energy. And that discovery led to award of the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. So that was incredibly unexpected and incredibly exciting. Now, Hubble didn't just look at distant galaxies. It also looked at our own galaxy and the material within it. This allowed it to produce beautiful images of regions where stars were forming, nebulae, uh, clouds of gas and dust, light years, tens of light years, thousands of light years across uh, sometimes. And within them, those images of stars being born. One particular image grabbed the attention of astronomers when it was first taken back in the early 1990s and really showed us about the first stages of the formation of whole solar systems. Here's Professor Jane Greaves, who works on the formation of solar systems and is based here at Cardiff University. Oh, yes, this was the discovery of um, the so-called proplids in um, the star-forming region in the Orion constellation. Um, this, was, this was really amazing, actually. Um, so proplids is a, um, a slightly funky abbreviation for protoplanetary disks. And this is a sort of flat whirling plate of um, stardust and gas that we expect around very young stars. And it had been a hypothesis um, going back centuries, really. This was like a way the solar system had formed, which is why the planets all orbit in like they were all like circles drawn on a plate. Um, but it had been um, kind of in the background um, as far as observations went. There had been a few attempts in the 80s. And then when Hubble came along in the 90s, there was suddenly this stunning picture of these dark plate-like things floating against the backlight of the Orion Nebula. And it really showed just, just scores of these perfect little protoplanetary disks or proplids. And it was just, you know, a reality check of, you know, we're on the right lines. We can get into this more and find out how planets form. It works because there's the backlight of the um, 
uh, the Orion Nebula behind it. The, these things work because they're silhouetted, right? Otherwise, I mean, these are dark, these are black things, and you can't see black against a black background. Yes, exactly. So against the darkness of space, um, you, you wouldn't really see them. Their um, function is because they're relatively dense and cold compared to normal matter in space. Their function is to block light. Um, so it was really the backlight was the um, was the surprise that suddenly they were all revealed. Of course, we've gone on since and found other ways um, of detecting these proplids and in some different wavelengths of light that Hubble doesn't do, for example, they glow or they tell you about the gases. But it was really this discovery image we went from like maybe one object where we were like yep that looks like a disc to these dozens yeah it certainly uh, expanded the, uh, the the number of things we could uh, we, we could study and and so what do we what do we now know about the the process of, of formation of forming solar systems what's the what's the current understanding of how that actually takes place well, the current understanding is that the original idea was pretty much right. So the stuff whirling around the sort of um, equator of the star um, forms this kind of plate of gas and stardust, and that's turned out to be correct. Um, some of the mysteries we've still got, we're looking at other wavelengths to see particularly how these stardust particles stick together, um, because otherwise you'd just have basically grit whirling around a star, you'd never have planets. So some of the work that's going on, for example, at um, microwave and radio wavelengths, you can look at the kind of faint heat glow from these rocks and see if they really are sticking together. And then you can say, well, is that happening um, at a few astronomical units from the star? So maybe you could make um, a bigger and bigger clumps of rocks that could eventually be the core of the planet. Now, finding the disks of debris around other planets. Now, finding the disks of debris around other stars is all well and good. But what about the planets themselves? Now, normally planets are far too close to their stars to be seen directly by telescopes in all but a few extreme cases, although nowadays we are getting better at that. But back in the mid 2000s, it was thought that Hubble had maybe done just that. Yeah, this is really amazing. So um, I think in 2004, Hubble was taking pictures, trying to um, image basically not one of these proplids, but a much older um, dust belt basically around the star Fomalhaut. And that's thought to be bits of grit that come along later when asteroids or comets collide and there's a kind of shower of um, bits that fall off. And in the image, um, they notice this kind of bright dot. And then by doing it um, a couple of years later and then a bit later, it looked really like the track of a um, a planet, um, something that was um, maybe illuminated by the star or glowing a bit with its own internal radiation. And this was really exciting because it's quite a nearby star. It's only like 20 light years away. So it's a bright star in our skies. And it looked like we were really seeing a giant unexpected planet moving in this nearby system. Uh, and it looked like that, but um, but it's now thought that, in fact, we, we weren't seeing that at all right yeah this is kind of funny because i think astronomers thought well job done and dusted their hands and went on did something else and then somebody went and checked um images that were taken later um so in the um early mid 2010s and they found the thing i mean it was moving but it wasn't behaving quite like they thought it was getting fainter and leaving a sort of squiggly trail when they put the images together and it really looks like it wasn't a planet at all. It was um, kind of a cloud of exploding particles from maybe where two um, asteroid-like bodies collided. Um, so that 
changes the original picture a lot because there were puzzles about this. It looked like um, the, what was thought to be a planet wasn't quite tracking like a planet, like not going around the plate properly, but maybe sort of charging outwards. And that makes more sense if it's actually a shower of debris from a kind of explosion or a catastrophe. Um, but still quite a few puzzles left because they worked out um, in this paper that I think you and I both looked at. You'd need some pretty big objects. You might need to blast a chunk off the side of something like or half the size of Pluto, say. And that, you know, in a stable, mature planetary system is not something you'd expect to catch by chance. And I think the calculations were if that had happened, the original 2004 detection, they might have happened to catch it something like, Oh, five or six weeks after it happened and on cosmic timescales that's nothing so I think there's still a lot um, that Hubble can do there um, to go what on earth is going on. You're listening to Pythagorean Astronomy where we're celebrating 30 years of the Hubble Space Telescope. Let's return now to our own cosmic backyard and look at our own solar system. Professor Lee Fletcher is a planetary scientist at the University of Leicester and he studies the atmospheres of gas giant and ice giant planets. That's Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. What does the Hubble Space Telescope offer to a planetary scientist such as Lee? If you're looking at the atmospheres of the giant planets, for example, what you really need is a long-term consistent data set. And what I mean by long-term is one that spans several year with several years with similar optics and similar instrumentation and from a ground-based facility where you're always battling against the weather against clouds against problems of getting access to the facility it's always been really challenging so what hubble can do even to this day is provide us with that long-term self-consistent data set but if you go back to that period in the in the early 90s you're quite right, we were only five or six years after the tremendous encounters with Uranus and Neptune by the Voyager 2 spacecraft. Um, after those observations from Voyager, the question is, is there any other way that we can continue to do science at Uranus and Neptune? And along comes Hubble with its capability to resolve those targets out there in the uh, distant solar system. And one of the, the, the earliest uh, exciting results that came from Hubble's observations was that an enormous great dark spot that had been swirling in the atmosphere of Neptune when Voyager flew past had completely vanished. In then five years between 1989 and 1984 that large swirling vortex had dissipated completely and that was quite an exciting uh, thing to find. There's a program called OPAL, the Outer Planet Atmosphere's Legacy. And the idea there is to look at Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune once every year and do it in such a way as you can track the slow evolution of their atmospheres as they uh, perform their long and lonely journey uh, around the sun. In some cases like uh, Uranus now, we've got more than a Uranian season of observations from Hubble. The Uranian season is 21 Earth years long, and we've got more like 26 years of data now, so we can see how that atmosphere evolves. Opal has been a, a wonderful workhorse for planetary scientists over the past uh, several years of it operating. 
The Hubble Space Telescope is far from the only telescope that astronomers use. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of other telescopes down here on Earth, some of them much bigger. The largest telescopes currently in use for optical astronomy are maybe 10 metres across, uh, some bigger. And there are even bigger telescopes, 30 or 40 metres across, planned uh, for future operation. Those telescopes are limited by our own planet's atmosphere, but they can overcome that through techniques such as adaptive optics, uh, adjusting the shape of one or more of the mirrors in the telescope to counteract the, the wobbling of the light caused by uh, the air that it's looking through. Now, with these massive telescopes, they can in theory get now with these massive telescopes, they can in theory get wonderful resolution. And can that even perhaps trump those images from the Hubble Space Telescope? You don't even need a professional class telescope these days to contribute to things such as planetary scientists. Amateur astronomers all over the world use their telescopes to take very useful observations of planets in our solar system, for example, that professionals will use uh, in their analysis. So do these developments in both amateur and professional telescopes here on Earth make Hubble obsolete? Well, I mean, the, the ground-based telescopes, a lot of the instruments that you use on ground-based telescopes in order to do that sort of correction, they can be the size of a room or sometimes the size of a small house. These are big beasts that they use in order to get those incredible observations from ground-based facilities. You simply can't do that on a spacecraft. You can't do it on a planetary mission. And at the moment, you cannot do it even on a, on a space telescope size, to the size of Hubble. So you have to be clever. You have to be clever about how you design your instrumentation in order to take the observations. So I would never ever suggest that the Hubble Space Telescope observations are, are straightforward. And in fact, it's a mark of just how highly sought after they are. That Astronomers all over the world compete every year to try to get time on this world-class facility, still world-class, 30 years after being up there in orbit. And, and part of the, the reason that um, it's been so highly sought after recently is the explosion in the um, capabilities for extrasolar planetary science. So there's a, a particular type of science where you need very, very precise and accurate observations of the amount of light coming from a star and planet system. So you can look at how the light dims when the planet transits in front of a star or how the light increases when the planet is uh, is hidden out of the way of the star. Okay, so there you need extremely stable conditions and extremely stable conditions over long spans of time to try to construct these uh, transit spectra of extrasolar planets. And from those spectra, we can start to understand the fingerprints of the various gaseous species and clouds that might be present on stars around, uh, on planets around other stars out there in the cosmos. And that's a lovely way to connect what we do with our solar system planets to what we're starting to do with these extrasolar planets in characterizing the environmental conditions on those worlds. And, and arguably Hubble has been a leader in that regard. And in fact, a, a trendsetter because by demonstrating over the last 20 years that that sort of science is possible, it's spurred on a whole generation of, of ground-based astronomers to try to replicate and ultimately improve upon the capabilities to study extrasolar planets um, using these uh, visible and near-infrared wavelength ranges. And of course, it's, it's important to bear in mind that when Hubble was launched in 1990, uh, we didn't know about any planets around other stars other than our sun. I mean, they were, they were hypothesised that, that they were possibly there, but the idea of detecting them was 
uh, well, some thought it was a fanciful field of uh, field of research. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a great example of designing your space mission, your space telescope, or your planetary mission to to access those regions of discovery space that you haven't dreamt of just yet. And the beauty of the Hubble Space Telescope, as we've come to discover, is the ability to service it as it was serviced every few years up to up to 2009 because that meant that you could always have the latest and greatest technology as part of the observatory and i think that um future missions and future space telescopes are not being designed in that way to be serviceable in orbit for all the risks that were involved in in doing so and um that could open them up to potential issues when it comes to failures, as we saw with the Space Telescope back in the early 1990s. But even more so than that, it means that you cannot update the technology every so often. This brings us very nicely on to those future space telescopes. Although there are missions constantly being designed, built and launched to make very targeted observations in one particular field, uh, every now and again we get a telescope that is very, very uh, broad in its scope, such as the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, the next big mission that's being worked on by uh, institutions around the world, uh, comprising NASA, ESA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency, is the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, it's often billed as the successor to Hubble, though that's not necessarily quite accurate. To find out more, let's hear from Dr. Sarah Kendrew from the European Space Agency, who's an instrument scientist on one of the instruments on the upcoming James Webb Space Telescope. James Webb Space Telescope is often billed as the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, but it really is quite a different observatory. Um, very different from Hubble, it's going to be observing um, purely in the infrared, so at longer wavelengths than uh, where, Hubble, where Hubble's instruments are sensitive, uh, although there is a region uh, of overlap. And James Webb was really designed to, um, to build on those particular areas where Hubble made some of its biggest breakthroughs. Um, that is, for example, study of galaxies in the early universe at very high redshift, um, the formation of stars and planets. And then excitingly also, um, the study of the atmospheres of planets um, around other stars, which is an area that really uh, almost didn't exist when we started planning for the James Webb Space Telescope, because this is really quite a recent uh, area of discovery. Um, but with James Webb's larger size and its incredibly good sensitivity and the various capabilities it has on board in its instruments, um, is going to be a fantastic um, observatory for characterizing exoplanet atmospheres as well. So James Webb won't be a direct replacement for Hubble, but hopefully a very worthy successor when it launches in the next year or two. Here's Jane Greaves on how it fits in with the science she's trying to do. So the JWST fits in beautifully neatly between um, the short optical light and the long radio light. Um, so it expands a lot on the capabilities of Hubble by moving into infrared and um, slightly longer wavelengths. And that's something you really have to do from space. You can't do from the Earth's surface. And it's not um, a capability we've had with a large telescope before. So that'll be great for looking at things like you want to get a bit closer into the star. You want to look at quite warm and hot material that emits really well in the infrared. Um, if you want to look at the inner zone where maybe a planet like the Earth would form. So we'll be able to um, use JWST to take pictures to say, well, how much stuff is there? Can we maybe see 
oh, little um, dark lanes carved out by forming planets in some of these protoplanetary disks. And also because JWST will be a really flexible telescope with lots of instruments, we'll be able to put gas that's there for things like, have you got stuff you could make um, an atmosphere for an Earth-like planet? Even like particular elements, like with a push, we might be able to find some of the chemical elements that are important to life that we don't think about so much, but nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, that kind of thing. They've all got chemical fingerprints we can start to look for. The Hubble Space Telescope is like a cat. It's had many lives. Not only did it have uh, that first rescue mission in the early 1990s to correct the optics, that's not something that's going to be possible with a James Webb Space Telescope. So what does that mean for its lifetime? Here's Sarah Kendrow again. So this is an area, again, where, where James Webb is going to be quite different from Hubble. Um, James Webb is not going into an orbit around the Earth. Uh, it will go to an orbit at uh, L2, which is the second Lagrangian point, um, which is uh, approximately a million miles from the Earth. So it's, it's a very long way away. Um, so James Webb will not uh, be serviced. It will not be repaired. Um, and the, the lifetime of the mission was uh, proposed to be five years, but it will be significantly longer than that, we, we do know uh, by now. But it, it will definitely not uh, be in operation for 30 years. So it is more of a limited lifetime mission. That's, again, one of the reasons why it is so important to get it right when we launch, because if, you know, if something we cannot go fix it, we can't go service it, we can't go upgrade the instruments, there are no plans for that. Um, so also, again, in terms of preparing the science we want to do, you know, we can't wait sort of five years to figure out how to do something like we really have to do a lot of planning and modeling and simulations to really kind of figure out how to do the best science with James Webb. One of the interesting things about Hubble and the way the missions panned out is that the, the really groundbreaking discoveries that it's made have not been the ones that it was initially planned or designed to do. So it had those key projects uh, initially when it when it launched and things like the uh, the Hubble Deep Field, the atmospheres of exoplanets, the accelerating expansion of the universe just weren't included in that list, partly because they, they weren't even really envisaged at the time. Uh, with James Webb, what, what scope is there for those kind of serendipitous discoveries uh, that hopefully will be made by scientists all over the world. Yeah, I, I actually always find that very exciting, you know, reading about what people expected to do with Hull and then look at the things that have made the biggest breakthroughs. Um, so I work on um, the mid-infrared instrument for, J for the James Webb Space Telescope called MIRI. Um, and, and actually, it's the mid-infrared instrument is really going to um, really open up a lot of parameter space because in the mid-infrared, uh, the, the most direct predecessor was the Spitzer Space Telescope, whose mirror was, was less than a meter in size. So it's really the size of the James Webb Space Telescope and um, its sensitivity and the range of capabilities is going to be so much better than we had with the Spitzer Space Telescope. It can't not make some amazing, unexpected discoveries. One of the interesting things about Hubble and the way the missions panned out is that the, the really groundbreaking discoveries that it's made have not been the ones that it was initially planned or designed to do. So it had those key projects uh, initially when it when it launched and things like the uh, the Hubble Deep Field, the atmospheres of exoplanets, the accelerating expansion of the universe just weren't included in that list, partly because they, they weren't even really envisaged at the time. Uh, with James Webb, what, what scope is there for those kind of serendipitous discoveries uh, that 
hopefully will be made by scientists all over the world. Um, so I spend quite a lot of time um, helping set up kind of how to best use James Webb and particularly MIRI for exoplanet observations. Um, and I think that's a very exciting area of discovery. We're going, we're going to learn a lot about um, that the atmospheres around planets. So we, we know now that there are, you know, there's more than 4,000 known um, exoplanets currently um, in the archives. And um, so many of these systems that we now know of look completely different from our own solar system. So really create some very big questions about how these um, systems, these planetary systems around other stars, like how they form and how they evolve and, you know, what they might actually look like. Ultimately, with exoplanets, people are incredibly excited about, you know, the possibility of discovering life. Um, and so, you know, that's definitely an area where James Webb, particularly with its spectroscopic modes in the infrared, um, is going to uh, probably make some, some really exciting discoveries. Uh, I think probably also some very unexpected ones. Um, certainly also in, uh, the, in the, the high redshift universe, so uh, we will be able to really get back to um, this kind of a period in the history of the universe that we currently really don't have much information of because the light from those galaxies um, is, is, is so faint and shifted so far into the infrared. But James Webb is going to be so incredibly sensitive. If you did, Even at the near-infrared wavelength, if you compare the sensitivity to other facilities, it's really... Um, stunning. So we're really going to be able to see a lot of these like very, very young galaxies that we just haven't been able to see before. So it's going to be really exciting, um, you know, what we learn from, from those observations as well. Most of the scientific results from Hubble arise due to carefully planned observations as part of a programme of pre-planned activities. Sometimes, however, the universe isn't pre-planned and quick reactions are required. As Lee Fletcher explains, the team running a Hubble Space Telescope are there to help. When something exciting or unexpected happens out there in the solar system, you can bid for time from the director of the Space Telescope Institute in order to uh, sort of break in and interrupt the pre-planned observations of Hubble and point the Space Telescope at your new and exciting target of interest. And in the solar system, there are a couple of categories of that. The first is when a solar system body gets impacted by either an asteroid or comet. And the second is when you have an enormous outbreak of, of record-breaking storm activity, as we've seen on both Saturn and Uranus over the past decade or so. But the ones that I think I'm particularly excited about were those planetary impacts. And back at the beginning of Hubble's life, you had the impact of the Schumacher-Levy 9 comet fragments into the southern hemisphere of Jupiter, which created a whole chain of dark scars on the southern hemisphere that Hubble could monitor their redistribution after the impacts had actually taken place. So what happens is that the impactor, in that case an icy comet, goes in, explodes within the cloud tops, a column of superheated atmosphere ejects from Jupiter but then slams back down onto the cloud tops and results in a whole chain of exotic chemistry which create dark soot-like particles within the atmosphere. So when I was a postdoc working out at JPL in 2009, JPL is out in California and is one of the locations where planetary robotics are developed and, uh, and, and readied for launch. 
I was working out there when we got a call from some amateur astronomers who were regularly imaging Jupiter that they'd spotted a new dark scar in the southern hemisphere of the giant planet and that dark scar turned out to be the remnants of another impact in fact this time we believe an asteroid hit Jupiter rather than a comet. Now the Hubble Space Telescope had just undergone its final servicing mission in 2009 and so when we asked for time from the director in order to point Hubble at this fresh impact scar we actually thought that we wouldn't have the opportunity simply because they were still checking out the observatory after that servicing run but the director recognized the value of this science and allowed us to point Hubble at the impact scar not once but several times to track the redistribution of the chemicals and the redistribution of the aerosols in the weeks that followed that uh, that impact and imagine if you like it's like putting a a dye into a fluid, like uh, putting cream into a coffee, for example, and watching as the tendrils of cream get redistributed by the, the fluid that's present. That's exactly what you're doing with an impact. You're putting a tracer into the atmosphere and watching as it gets blown around by the prevailing winds. There's no other opportunity to do that other than impact events. And so that data set that we got from the Hubble Space Telescope will keep planetary impact and planetary atmosphere modelers going for years and years to come. The remarkable discoveries that flow from Hubble are at some point going to come to an end and other telescopes will have to take up the mantle. Whether by design or more likely the unexpected failure of a key part of the spacecraft, the mission will eventually end. What are astronomers likely most going to miss? Over the 30-year lifetime of the Hubble Space Telescope, the capabilities of amateur observers have come along in tremendous leaps and bounds, to the extent now where amateur observations of Jupiter and Saturn, for example, can provide uh, data sets that don't quite rival Hubble quality yet, but you could envisage them doing so in the not too distant future. And even amateur observers now are able to spot very bright storm activity on distant Uranus and Neptune as well. So the, the pace of developments in the amateur community have been quite, quite remarkable. The next thing to consider is the advent of the extremely large telescopes of the globe. So at the moment, some of the biggest and best telescopes in the optical are the eight to 10 meter diameter telescopes that are located in places like Hawaii and, and Chile. Now, the, the, the next generation of facilities could be going up to sizes in the 30 to 40 meter class and that will really revolutionize our capability to resolve small scale structure from a ground-based facility. But the third thing is in terms of space observations, the next large class observatory to be flown in space is called the James Webb Space Telescope and Webb will be subtly different to the Hubble Space Telescope in that it's optimized for longer wavelengths out in the infrared where you still get some reflected sunlight but you get a lot of the intrinsic emission from these planets. So it's like having a, a pair of infrared goggles where you can see the heat being given off by the objects uh, within our solar system. And in order to measure those sorts of traits you need a bigger mirror than Hubble has ever had and you need your components to be cooled down to low temperatures. So the James Webb Space Telescope will be a very different beast to Hubble and we probably shouldn't think of it as a Hubble replacement and in particular what it won't do is it won't give us access to the ultraviolet and that's something that I think 
astronomers, not just planetary astronomers, but astronomers across all different uh, fields will be feeling quite keenly when Hubble's life uh, does come uh, to an end. And so astronomers are already dreaming of the next big missions that could uh, give us access to the ultraviolet uh, once again and uh, watch this space. You never know what uh, bright ideas might be around the corner. One of the most iconic images from Hubble's entire mission is called the Pillars of Creation. It's a small region of a much larger nebula called the Eagle Nebula, which has a cluster of hot young stars at its heart. Showing three long pillars of gas set against a backdrop of the colourful nebula, it's one that many people will have seen, even if they don't realise it. Here's Jane Greaves on what that iconic image is actually telling us. I think that was quite an unexpected one. Um, so they were looking at a region um, of interstellar gas where new stars form. And it was realized that the first powerful stars that form blast out radiation and probably winds of particles as well that kind of strip back some of the surrounding gas. So the reason it looks like, it's all got kind of funny names, but it looks like to me like a set of fingers. The reason you get like this kind of fingers sticking out of a hand is because they think there's a dense bit at the top of each finger, which is um, a new, not necessarily so massive star forming in a kind of denser um, core of gas and then the stuff around gets kind of sandblasted and blown away in between these objects um, but the objects themselves provide some kind of shielding and that creates this kind of finger of gas behind the fingertip. Um, so it does kind of make sense when you think about it though how this sandblasting idea kind of works with radiation I think is is still quite debated but it gave us the idea that you could see these bright new um, young stars forming but there are also hidden stars that are following along a bit um, more slowly in the evolution and have yet to form and in fact we went and took um, infrared and longer wavelength images later showed that's exactly right there are these um, much cooler lumps of material about to form stars within the fingertips but you needed the long wavelengths that can look deeper into the dust and gas to actually find those so it the Hubble image kind of posed us an idea and went, well, that's how we think star formation works. Go out and see if that's really true. They did a beautiful job of making sure our eyes could pick up what Hubble can see when the image is reproduced. There are, um, you know, in science, we don't want to go, oh, everything is um, sorted because we found one picture of that confirms our idea of how things work. So in fact, Hubble's got other pictures um, of nebulae where the similar physics happens. But I think it's that iconic first one, like the proplids, that you go, yeah, that really is how it works because of this beautiful detailed picture. So with groundbreaking discoveries along with awe-inspiring images, how important has Hubble been to the astronomical community? Here's Anu Ojar again. I think it's been absolutely critical. I mean, I think what it is, is that the images from Hubble enable an emotional connection that you may not otherwise get. And I've seen this with astronomers as well. That emotional impact occurs amongst the general public. It occurs amongst students. It occurs amongst teachers. It occurs amongst astronomical professionals as well. I think, and this is just a personal sort of opinion, is what draws us in as, as astronomers, uh, be it professional or amateur, is beauty, be it the beauty of the mathematics that we can use to describe, you know, the dynamics that we see in the universe at all scales, to the beauty of 
applying those physical principles to what's going on, for example, within the, the, the electron transitions in an atom that we know is in, um, is in an interstellar dust cloud. You know, it's about beauty. And ultimately, whether we express that beauty in terms of mathematics or we express it in terms of the visual imagery we see, Hubble is about beauty. And I think that has why it's been so transformational with one of the reimagined Star Trek series, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation, when the first film came out, you know, which I think was about 94, 95, um, or thereabouts, you know, one of the backdrops immediately was, you could see it, a, a version of Pillars of Creation or, of M16. So, you know, and, and again, we've seen so many of those Hubble images now being used as backdrops in science fiction. There's that, but it's also, again, that connection about, about Hubble and about astronomy and better understanding the Earth and our solar system, because, you know, I know I'm being a little bit approximate here, um, but we could argue that our solar system was possibly born out of a, uh, a cloud of, of dust and gas just like this. So Hubble, through the Pillars of Creation, M16, call it what you will, um, you know, it's shown us effectively, given us an insight into, into the birth of our solar system, visually, in a way that the public can get. Yeah, so Pillars of Creation, one of the oldest images, um, one of my favourites, and uh, as I say, it's giving us a, a glimpse of what the conditions were like in our part of the galaxy, you know, five billion years ago that led to the formation of our solar system. I think it's fair to say that even cosmologists can't help to be affected by images such as this. Here's Steve Eels. In my book of writing, I've been using these images of cosmic dust in, you know, our galaxy. And the, the, I look at the Hubble pictures of the Pillars of Creation or some of these other... And you just see these amazing veils of dust. I mean, you could, it almost drags you into the picture. You can almost, for the first time, you can, it almost feels like we're almost being dragged into the actual interstellar medium. The visual stimulation it has provided to the astronomical community is phenomenal. Hubble makes you feel for the first time almost as if you're there, as if you, you could feel the veils of dust, the clouds of dust floating past you, or you can... Um, and you can see the dust in the, the nearby galaxies. I mean, the amazing uh, detail and um, it's almost like looking at looking at clouds in the sky. It's just because it, it's it makes you imagine stuff. And there we leave our journey with the Hubble Space Telescope and its 30 years and counting of incredible science. That's it for this month. My thanks to my guests, Anu Oja, Steve Eels, Jane Greaves, Lee Fletcher and Sarah Kendrew. Don't forget you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk. But until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. 